The Canadian government's going to make it easier for first-time home buyers to buy a home. Or are they? The new budget's out, and there's a, there's a few initiatives in this budget that uh, are meant to improve lives for Canadians one way or another. Um, most uh, notably, they've taken notice of the housing affordability crisis that we have been dealing with for the past while. Um, you know, cost of buying a home has doubled in uh, the last few years. And... Uh, so the government has some ideas on how they can help us uh those of us first-time home buyers buy our first house we'll see what we if we think that they're going to actually help us out at all or uh is this just some some lip service to make it look like they're actually doing anything correct that is exactly what they are doing they are just creating another savings account for canadians so that they can just save some more of their hard-earned dollars and eventually purchase a house because saving a house saving for a house is the exact same as making houses more affordable right not not that's a big not right yeah so what you can do now apparently or after this at the towards the end of this year um is save money tax-free just like a tax-free savings account and your rsps you can save up to $40,000 in an account for, uh, I think that's the 40,000 is current. And then are they adding the 8,000 or something per year afterwards? No, it's a max, currently a max of 40,000 overall that you can put in this account and then take out and use to buy your home. Yeah. And they've capped it at $8,000 a year that you can put in. So it's very restricted. They've already regulated this. Uh, quite severely and uh, I have to say like is $40,000 really enough? Well it's on an average house it's the initial 10% payment. If your average house costs 400000 Well in, in some luckier markets you're right. But what, What's the cost of the average house in Canada these days? Uh, in our bar, in our current market it's it is closer to the four hundred thousand dollars, but but across the country, across the it's country, a hair over eight hundred. It's the, it's closer to five percent then. Yeah, well, for them, if you're a first time home buyer, would it not be five percent down your pudding? Would not not be an option? It would be, but you can't like so. This problem exists now, mm-hmm. and you are trying to save forty thousand dollars at eight thousand a year. That doesn't help you now. That helps you after things continue getting worse mm. fair it just means that whatever you put in on that uh value of the a savings account is something that you don't pay taxes on so what so for people that are in what 30 30 percent or something on taxes on on your eight thousand dollars what does that equate to for them to not pay taxes on 30 percent of eight thousand dollars yeah isn't that twenty four hundred bucks yeah well okay so it it combines allegedly this could be wrong this is my understanding so far is it combines the the good parts of the rsp and the tfsa so 
you can put it in without having paid tax on it. Um, and then you can pull it out and use it to buy your house without paying tax at that point. Mm-hmm. So it is actually in that respect better than an RSP or a TFSA, but it's not really enough, especially in markets like Toronto, Vancouver. Can, can you not pull out it on a TFSA and not have to pay taxes on it? You pay tax before you put it in. Okay. That's right. Cause it, yeah. Yeah. It's just on, Are, on the money. No, is that correct? Is that on the money accrued yeah. accru- accrued in it? You you pay tax. Like, before you put that money in, you've already been taxed on that money. So whatever it then proceeds to grow to, you don't get taxed on. The RRSP, you put that money in before you're taxed on your income. That's why if you put yeah, money you, in RRSPs, you yeah, get a bunch you, back at the end of the year. It. Yeah, that's true. So it combines those those two bonuses in that you could put it in pre-tax thus decreasing the overall amount of tax you might pay that year and then if it grows well it's in there not really pre-tax you can pull it well the money has not yet been taxed before you put it in like how does that work so that you put your money in from your savings account right you're already being taxed from your your well it, employer. You're getting a credit back. If as soon as you put that money in at the end of the year on your taxes, you'll report it, and then you'll receive a tax rebate yeah. for the that amount. The same way RSPs work. Yeah, right? exactly. So technically, you're not getting taxed on that money when you put it in. You get taxed on it later when you pull it out of your RSP. In a way, I'm getting taxed on it because I don't get to uh, have that. You don't tax get it all year. Money back, and I don't get to accrue interest on that money. Well, you get to get it. They give it back to you at the end of the year. Yeah, but that's a whole year that I could have accrued uh, interest or investment right. on that money that I didn't have until the government the, gave it back to me. The government accrued interest on it instead and kept it. Yes. Yeah. It's not. It's not totally perfect, but it, there, it's, there's it's an a, advantage to it. Yes, there's an advantage to it. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a bad system. It's just a matter of. Um, it's only a small measure to increase people's ability to save for these expensive houses um the government is going to do something else though to help your houses cost a lot less what's that well one thing i heard they're going to do is um a two-year ban on foreign home buyers so imagine telling people moving to canada new immigrants that uh well, not necessarily immigrants, but some immigrants, if they're not status yet, are Canadian citizens, they uh, wouldn't be able to purchase a house. Well, if you go and dig deeper into this, I don't I don't know the details of it, but there's a whole list of exemptions. There's a whole bunch of ways around this. For example, I know one that I recently heard, uh, haven't been able to, to confirm yet, but if you're a foreign buyer who owns a Canadian company or corporation, you can just use that company to buy. So there's a lot of ways around this. So I could have a BlackRock Canada corporation and continue to purchase homes and rent them out to people. Even if you weren't a Canadian citizen. Yeah. You just have to have a BlackRock Canada. Yeah, exactly. Um, Also, it does not apply to people who are working here. Um, like with a work visa, but are not citizens, they're allowed to purchase. So, uh, this probably is worth digging deeper into, but overall there's so many exemptions to it. I don't think it's actually really going to do anything. So instead the government is putting 10 
billion dollars into uh, a uh, housing accelerator fund, right? Well, how many homes does that build? Allegedly. Homes or houses? I don't know. Whatever they are. How many? I don't know. You tell me. 100,000. What's what's the current shortage of homes in Canada? I don't even know. Two million. Yeah, that's one point two million in Ontario alone. So how does the federal government's ten billion dollars actually buy these? The hundred thousand. How homes? does how does it accelerate homes? Well, you see, Josh, you put a name on it, like accelerator fund. And once it has acceleration in the name, you know that it's going faster. I, I really have no idea how <laughs> how this fund makes more houses on the market. Like, firstly, the federal government doesn't really build houses. No, it's managed more at a provincial level. So it's not clear how this money comes goes from being money that the federal government has to a new home built in brandon manitoba like it's even how does that happen it's even managed more on a on a prevent a municipal level because it's really like i know how houses are built and 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 subdivisions are built what happens is you take an area of new developed land and then it's got to get specced for all of the utilities your sewage electricity and whatnot and that whole area has to be purchased a large portion of it from a prospective buyers in order to actually start developing and then on top of that you've got uh the demand issues where if you can't get these large developments actually sold out in a certain timing you're you're stuck without people actually being able to have houses for a while so i mean what what is what does this accelerator fund do? Or the, is the government just going to pay for the houses in certain municipalities to just get built by developers? Are they gonna, is this ten billion dollars going to go towards developers to not worry about building houses and they can just go and build the houses and then the houses will just be on the market? It's a great question and it has not been clarified how it works. Um, and uh, we can say this safely across all political parties that have said they will pour money into building houses. Not one of them has explained how they're actually going to do it. But uh, Pierre Polyev would tell you, you have to remove the gatekeepers. That is his favorite line, and he's probably not wrong, because some of the issues with developers is the uh, municipalities that do come up with certain um, regulations, significant regulations into where they can build, how they can build. And, I mean, that's both good and bad. I mean, it's good in the sense that if you actually were to develop a housing uh, development that would have actual, let's say, zero emissions abilities, right, or green technologies, we could have a much more futuristic style of living in a specific area that would be much more beneficial when the climate change policies start to take effect. But that's not going to be the case right now. I mean, we're going to have whatever municipality deciding on how houses should be built in those areas. And we're going to have to find market drivers, really, because what happens is we need we need uh, 
buyers that can actually afford uh, certain areas. I mean, when the municipalities are heavily influenced by the builders. So, oh yeah, and, yes, and, totally. And the builders don't want them to. They, they argue back and yeah, forth. That's right. I know, I know. But I'm just saying the problem comes down to developing a specific uh, new development or having individuals take the challenge of redevelopment in an area that is actually doing poorly and that's nimbyism is that what it's called uh that's that's what ha that's what that leads to oh not in my backyard yeah, yeah that's right don't redevelop this area i don't want anything new that looks different than what was there already yeah well the problem is sometimes homes do become dilapidated and they are falling apart and it becomes uh, an opportunity for some people to to buy into an uh, area that is slightly on the cheaper when you could uh, already have an existing area that you know you have an opportunity to have a house uh, the but problem is that's a challenge for generally to make that profitable you're not going to build just one house in that location no no and that's where people start to not be too pumped about it yeah well like you're saying we have a two million home supply uh problem. shortage yes so, yeah shortage so the, there's that's what i'm saying there's a supply problem so what's currently happening is people are bidding on a small supply of homes and in order for them to get more homes what do you do you the, make more you make more but as i just stated in in development you basically have to have uh a pre-purchase of a certain amount of a development and you have to have a certain amount of a municipality um have area for development right so first of all if city planning isn't developed like 20 to 50 years in advance for where housing and uh how infrastructure is going to work you're already slowing the process of developed and followed yeah yeah that's correct but i'm just Winnipeg. saying yeah yeah so <laughs> if you don't have these plans and you're leaving it up to developers to come up with the plans and then you just are checking them over after the fact you're already creating a slow process in, in developing mm -hmm. so part of the issue might be that maybe the 10 billion dollars could go towards pre-purchasing um development areas so that a municipality could say hey we want to build this and we're not sure how much of it will se sell uh part of the issue i think is it's still it's not going to alleviate the the current home buyer it's going to help maybe some potential home buyer in the future but maybe but not by much i mean well not by much but i mean if if properly implemented and we know how good the government is at that but if properly implementing properly. a uh, a supply increase with this $10 billion in which municipalities can develop a area without having to worry about pre-purchase purchasing of the homes. We, we might see faster development creating uh, a quicker supply of, of homes. What about the federal government as a developer? So they buy the land and they pay for prepping it. And then they sell off the lots to builders. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Is is they're not really a developer. Well, I guess they are. Well, a, when you have a new sense. neighborhood, don't you? My understanding is it's created by a developer, right? Yeah, he preps it, and then they they sell the lots. 
Yes. To builders. Yes. So that developer is going to do that in such a way to maximize maximize their profits. And therein kind of lies the problem because they'll hold lots back so that you don't have too many available at once and they can make sure that they keep the ones available selling at a premium. If you have the federal government in there as a developer, assuming they don't bungle it up, which they would, they wouldn't be looking to maximize their profits, right? They'd just be like, we need to get this done. Let's do it, get it done, get things built, get people in homes. Yeah, in a perfect world. I mean, it's a potential. Uh, it's a potential method in development. I, I, I'm. I'd be curious to see if it's actually been tried in any municipality or country in and of itself. But I, I do think that the supply issue is is the main issue. Mm-hmm. And I think mostly what we need to worry about is cities and their and and their city planning mechanisms gatekeepers yeah they 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 are holding back the developers uh in a sense that their regulations are are poor and not speedy for the for builders and secondly like you're saying builders are trying to get top dollar i mean how do you prevent you don't blame them that's their business they're trying to make money well yeah so the only way to stop that would be to I don't know tax them for holding on to lots that are that could be sold. I don't know how you incentivize that, but in the current system, they're going to try to make their money, and it, it, so would you if you if it was you. So, so that's a that's a tough one, and ten billion dollars is not really going to put much of a dent in that situation. The question we should be asking these politicians, though is how, when they say $10 billion, is that getting used to create 100,000 homes? It sounds good that you're you're turning money into homes, but how are they doing that? Those are the answers we don't have. No, I, I think we're probably on, our, our guess is probably more accurate. It's not, this funding isn't going directly to building houses. It's going to increasing development. And, and hopefully removing regulation and red tape that gets in the way of building housing. Well, it's not always the regulations, too. I mean, like I, I was saying, city planning is, is the main issue in a lot of areas. Because when you get dilapidated areas, how, how do you take an area of a city, let's just say here in Winnipeg, right? I've driven down a lot of areas in the north end that homes are just falling apart i've seen homes where you can see straight through the walls they have no windows they're just cardboard uh windows and uh i mean the new cardboard glass and you can go and purchase these houses uh, actually like when i when i first got into the market it was it was uh probably anywhere from 60 to 80 thousand dollars for these falling apart homes and now recently i've seen they're at one hundred and twenty thousand dollars because a lot is valuable yeah so what i'm saying is how do you create uh, a market out of current homes that are dilapidated i mean these people are on a lower end of the poverty scale right is there a method that we can use this money to redevelop already developed areas and just build 
better neighborhoods in some of these areas where you uh, have good homes out of land that's already feasible to build on. Well, maybe that's what some of that money going into the rapid housing initiative is for. Um, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how much that breaks down to, but they're going to add 6,000 more uh, units of rapid housing, which is supposed to be affordable housing. And um, the idea is to address sort of more what you're talking about right now. Because when you're talking about going into existing neighborhoods and piecemeal picking out this house here and this house there that are all run down and replacing them, yeah, that's less uh, a, a, like a large-scale building uh, process as like a new development. And, and it's not really adding a lot of homes, right? Because you're just replacing one home with one home. Well, we know and, an area in St. Vitale where it, we might beg to differ. Yes, there's a lot of replacing one home with two there or three there's a lot of infill homes but that's what, like cities densify this is what happens you know the people living in the area don't enjoy it but that's that's how cities work they densify you know as a as a neighborhood matures more people tend to live in it mm-hmm. that's how cities work they can't just spread out forever and ever and ever i mean they can but that creates its own problems yeah the development problems that we currently have as we currently build more and more subdivisions and sub suburban life is continuing yeah and And city planning has been done poorly as you mentioned so transportation becomes a big problem i know i know so anyways i mean it's it's all grand of them to add 10 billion dollars to the deficit that we currently have over a trillion bucks but what else is in this budget adam well since you brought up the deficit this year, we're going to run $52.8 billion of deficit, which is quite a bit less than the 110 plus that we just finished spending last year. Oh, man, what does that mean for the individual? Do I have to pay extra money for somehow? Well, new deficit often means new taxes, but uh, they haven't explained exactly what it means. What do you think it means? Well, I can tell all you listening to just head over to debtclock.ca. And then we'll tell you exactly how much the federal government's debt is and your share that you'll be paying over the next so long in your life. And that's about $31,000 each Canadian is in debt currently. So just add that to the amount of money that we will somehow be paying, which usually comes out of our income tax. But hey, there's one other uh, notion uh, in this... um, budget that we have recently uh been interested we were talking about pharmacare recently that's coming up probably in the future but before the pharmacare is dental care uh how many of us need to have our teeth cleaned and we need coverage for that all of us even the michael lee sure do that's we all should be getting our teeth cleaned i know i'm due to go and uh i have coverage through the blue cross and it's okay coverage but the point is i'm also gonna be currently paying for dental coverage for uh kids under 12 i believe it is that's coming up this year right uh, this year yeah uh it will start this year uh for children under 12 um universally covered and then it expands uh by 2025 to cover all but but there are some caveats on that 
Are, oh. you, are you aware of the caveats? No, go ahead. The caveats are that uh, if your family household makes yes. over $90,000 a year, you will get the pleasure of helping fund this initiative, but it will not be available to you. Well, I would like to ask Michael Lee, who we haven't heard much from. He's sitting quietly. Michael Lee, how do you feel about paying for all of these kids' uh, dental plans? I don't quite understand why I have to pay for children that aren't mine. That makes sense. Well, you know, people would make the argument that when and if you have your own children, then suddenly this plan is going to help you. Uh, assuming that you don't decide to make more than $90,000 as a household. Yeah. I mean, I... I I mean, look, you, are, if I understand it. you already pay for everybody to go to the doctor anyway. So now you're just getting to pay for something that, that maybe eventually will become universal. So more of my money that I'm trying to save to be a first time home buyer so I can put it away. I have to now give to this. Right. But you can save 8,000 of your extra income right. every year because you have all that extra income that is now being taken away from you for, go. for initiatives like this. I want to ask you guys, would sense. it have been better to just strictly go straight to the um, implementation of an actual universal system? Like, none of us pay to go to the doctor, you know? We don't, we don't pay up front. Yeah, that's what I mean. But everybody pays for it. Nothing's but free. I don't get to go to the dentist for uh, taxpayer coverage right now. Why don't they just go straight into purchasing uh, a universal dental plan? Because this is for low-income people only. Isn't it going to upgrade eventually? Is that, was that the initiative? No, the initiative is that it becomes for everyone, not just children. Yeah. But it's still capped at 90 grand a household. For the foreseeable future. They haven't mentioned any change on that that I know of. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I agree. So that will not be universal, in spite of what they might try to call it. But uh, universally, we will all get to pay for it. And some people will tell you that that's how it should be. Other people, like myself, are less of a fan of that system. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of good because it, it it's a sense that it, like a lot of jobs that aren't offering these benefits, they will be the people who are under $90,000. That's a very good point. They will... Uh, have the same benefit that anyone making the households making over that would probably already have that benefit i mean yeah so actually touching on that mm -hmm. is this going to cause a conflict now with existing plans in the province yes it, it likely will yeah and there's been no explanation on yet on how that will be dealt with although i mean it was just recently announced so mm -hmm. more info hopefully forthcoming Hopefully. But that's definitely going to be a thing. Yeah. And a lot of people, like, it's not just provincial, it's private and everything. So, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. But you know what? It's not like we're being actually taxed more yet right now. So, what's going to happen right now? It's just going to come out of the printer? Well, yes. For it? And I'll tell you how much. $5.3 over five years to get this started out, get it, get it going, and then $1.7 a year after that to maintain it which inevitably that'll probably end up being higher too. So that's what's going to come out of the printer 
to pay for this. Well, don't worry about it because I have it on good authority that budgets balance themselves. So eventually <laughs> we will just, you know, have a higher GDP and then the balanced budget will occur and all this stuff that they paid for will just magically be paid for when we increase our GDP here in uh, Canada. Right. That's what they tell me anyways. Our GDP that is heavily, heavily based on an inflated housing market. That, that should go well for all of us. Well, you know, it's not like there's going to be a crash and then people's housing is going to be worth less. No. Well, I do see something interesting on this budget uh, in terms of housing. I'm a, I'd like to speculate. What do you guys think the indigenous housing of 4.4 uh, 4 billion over seven years is going towards? Is that going to be directed to actual... Um, Indigenous First Nations new homes? Well, I think it's good that they're going to get money for housing. It's just that, like everything else, $10 billion probably doesn't go a long way. I mean, it's a lot. $4 billion. Four, $4 billion, sorry. $4 billion, which is far less than 10 doesn't go a long way. Um, and, and I do know that there was some info on that, that there was they were talking about housing being built on reserves. And, well, I don't know for sure. I can only speculate that it it probably costs more to build a house in a lot of those more remote areas. So $4 billion, it would be great to know um, what the process is on that, you know, have an idea how many homes that's going to build and how much of an impact that makes. If it has any impact at all, it's obviously a positive, but is it enough? How far does it go? These are some good questions. Well, Josh, Michael Lee, mm-hmm. we've we've discussed in a few, you know, one or two previous occasions now, um, all the discussions around EVs and twenty thirty five, and you know, all of us might be in in slightly different positions on how we feel that's going to be implemented and how long it's going to take. But regardless of our feelings on the matter, the uh, the government has some thoughts on. Um, what they're going to do to continue pushing this mandate of theirs, which just to remind you is, uh, is a mandate that 60% of light duty vehicles, uh, by 2030 being sold be electric vehicles and hundred percent by 2035 light duty being like your car, you drive to work day to day, you know, your truck, whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> They have extended the $5,000 incentive that applies to certain EV vehicles, which uh, I believe is regulated by the price of the vehicle. Don't know the exact stats on that, but that's been extended. Um, And there was some talk of uh, money being spent on improving the charging infrastructure uh, to the tune of, I think, $900 million dollars further on that point uh, is i think i think any infrastructure spending is usually very good i think as we were just previously discussing the problem is usually with uh city development right now how do they go about implementing this infrastructure of ev charging because we have a large landmass in this country and granted, our actual areas of population 
uh, are more densified towards the border in the uh, four provinces, I should say, the province and uh, three provinces and, and territory here that we have in the west and mostly in the greater Toronto to Montreal area is where most of Canadians are densified. Right. So obviously the infrastructure is going to be first built along this uh, from Vancouver to Winnipeg and then in the Ontario to Quebec region, right? But what what are we saying is going to happen? Are, are, are these EV stations going to be uh, a grant that is purchased by uh, or is uh, ri- um, what's the word I'm looking for here is applied for by businesses and developers so that they can actually to have them on their property have them on their property yes that's it's uh, a good question because I mean it would be all well and good to have a nice EV charger on the side of the road in landmark there so some random person can just stop on the side of the road and charge their vehicle but how beneficial is that really the current uh strategy in city planning is to have uh basically satellite uh developments in which um you have a trans uh like a transition area where you can have shopping uh hotels and whatnot in a in a charging area and you just go to these areas you can go about your business so even like right now here in winnipeg we basically can go to the seasons of tuxedo and get your vehicle charged and you can kind of walk around there but not really so much in the winter climate because it's still a bit of a distance a few blocks to go to the other stores across the street well it could be more walkable they they don't design these areas very well to be more walkable they they make them assuming you're going to be driving your car like from this store to that store to this store uh which is not really a brilliant idea and it's it's an interesting point that you raise um like a centralized sort of parking structure for these large shopping areas which could could have like electric vehicle charging infrastructure incorporated into it it's it's not something we see here i suspect it might exist in more progressive cities than winnipeg um but this could be something you know as part of the the new 7.5 billion dollars in climate initiatives that were worked into this budget 700 million of it is going to promote greener buildings and neighborhoods so the idea of centralized parking and charging infrastructure could be part of a quote greener neighborhood and might go a long way to help um solve the 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 ev conundrum or one of it one of the ev conundrums of charging which is you know one of the big concerns people have about them um because, you know, lots of people can go, well, I put a charger in my garage and I charge my, my EV in my garage and I go and drive it around, do all my stuff. And at the end of the day, I drive it back home and I plug it in, which is great. But there are many, many people without garages. There's lots of people that have to park their cars on the street in front of their house. How are these people supposed to charge vehicles, right? Something like what you're talking about, like a shopping area or hotels, whatever, with a centralized 
uh, infrastructure for parking with maybe who knows, like bus services to get you to the places that are further away in the colder weather. But like you, seasons of tuxedo, if you wanted to walk from the outlet mall to Ikea, where the charging stations are, you can't easily do it. You have to walk across a massive road full of cars. They didn't plan for this kind of stuff. But at the same time, you guys think about it though. Do you not think that when they put these chargers up, they're going to be rapid chargers. So you don't have to leave your vehicle there for very long. You can actually sit in your vehicle and wait for it to charge. Yeah. That's exactly what they'll be. Cause they're going to, if you're going to put it in an area where there's nothing around you, more like it's going to be a rapid charger where you're, you're good to go in 10 to 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be in an area like Ikea or like season tuxedo, like you're talking about, it's going to be one of the ones that take a couple hours to get you back to full charge where you're going to pay a little bit more. You can just plug it in and leave. Cause I mean, you gotta remember it's going to be like a gas station. You can't just leave your car there for a couple hours. Like you gotta remember there's going to be other people now. that are going to be pushing all this on us, right. To have EVs and everything else. Everybody's going to be going out to get them. You're going to, you can't just walk away and leave your car there for a couple hours. No, that's what people do at charging stations. And, and moreover, we're talking about thousands of cars in a, in a, in a district or an area there. You know, if every single one of those is an EV, well, well, let's throw random numbers out there. Let's say at least 200 of them are low on charge and they need some charge before they can drive home. Well, There's not going to be 200 charging spots. You simply can plug your vehicle in and walk away and leave it on the charger, but you will be charged mm-hmm. extra over your charging time. You have right. a mobile device and you will download a app and that app will tell you exactly when your vehicle is charged and you have 10, 15 minutes to go there, just like you're pay, uh, paying for your parking in the city. And you got to go there and move your vehicle to a non-charging spot. And maybe you can continue doing stuff or go about your way. That's how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And these businesses are going to look at that and be like, it's just another way for us to make a little extra cash. And I mean, and it's not, I understand that because if you're going to create infrastructure where you have uh, large centralized parkades, those cost money right. to maintain and especially in winter climates. And if you have a lot of charging stations in there, you're going to need major, major power capability running to these structures. Yeah, I'm not opposed to uh, the building of infrastructure like this, especially mm-hmm. with the plan that you have. I mean, because what you said is accurate. There's a lot of people who are going to be living in apartments that basically probably don't have that. I mean, eventually right. that might become a, the same situation at your uh, an amenity in, in your apartment block where you can you pay have, extra for it. You can, yeah, you would have a charging station there where you just you go ex- you go there. You charge, you go and charge up, and then when the app says you're done, you got to leave. You know, yeah, no, that's uh, that's an interesting point you make because I mean, most a lot of people, I mean, they 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 don't park inside their inside a nice uh, garage or anything where they could have like in an ideal world. You, I would suggest you put geothermal heating in that garage so that it has a base temperature in which you can warm your vehicle up from with the uh, the current electrical power grid and have a nice warm vehicle without any emissions. Mm-hmm. But I mean, large portions of the population do not live in areas where that is going to be feasible. And those people are going to be SOL because in the meantime, uh, this this technology is going to be implemented first with the people who have money. And uh, most Canadians who make uh, under $60,000 a year uh, are going to 
not buy a $60,000 EV. Yeah. And they are not going to have the place to charge that up. I mean, hopefully, hopefully the technology, like we were discussing before, will eventually come to a more feasible price for most Canadians. It should. I It, it will eventually. I mean, all technology usually does become cheaper, you but, know. But that's not going to be happening tomorrow, right? And I don't think it's going to be happening by 2035. Well, probably not to the degree where everybody will be buying no. EV only. That's, no. that's tough to buy. That are that that's tough to believe right now. Yeah, I don't I don't believe it. But in regards to the actual nine hundred million dollars in EV charging infrastructure, I only hope that here in Canada we come up with a universal system in which any charging point you drive charging port that you plug plug into your vehicle is feasible with your vehicle. Because, like I said earlier some evs in the states have multiple patterns and you have to buy additional adapters for your vehicle and i just don't like that idea well au contraire because some of the vehicles are pretty generic and i say that because the example was today at work we had a gentleman come in who has a vw charging vehicle that was running low on battery from arizona that needed a charge mm-hmm. and we plugged in this vehicle in our wall for about an hour and it was the same charger that we've got for our Chevys, and it worked fine. Yeah, yeah. They, they're fairly standardized on those connections in that you have the Tesla superchargers, and then there's everything else, and yeah. they use one of two different plugs or both a lot of the time, which uh, which is is dictated by the, uh, I think, the speed at which they can charge. And a lot of vehicles will come with the adapters that you're going to need. But well, I have, listen, the point I'm making here is um, I have an Aspire laptop in front of me and adam has a hp and do we both have uh some kind of universal plug-in for the wall yes isn't that more convenient yes so why can't they just regulate that to have an appropriate one plug for all evs in because Canada? Of how are they going to make money because the, the technology is young i i'm fairly certain there will be some regulation on that or else They'll all just come together on one standard that is used by vehicles most people can buy because that's really going to dictate what gets yeah. built in, in yeah. like large amounts, right? What the people who are buying the regular mainstream vehicles need. Or to kind of counter Josh's point there as well, don't forget, remember back in the day you used to buy a phone charger and it'd come with the one for the UK? It'd come with one that you would adapt to wherever you're going. Oh, I'll go one so, step forward past that then. I believe you. Uh, <laughs> I remember when we had these Nokia flip phones and LG phones and they all had 100 adapters. And now most of us, or at least most two of us here, have a USB-C and one has a USB lightning cable. So standardization is exactly what's going to occur. Yeah, but, if it's not regulated, it'll just kind of happen Anyways, it'll just probably take longer and be a little bit more of a painful process. I mean, it's a it's a, a complete <clears throat> painful process if you run out of battery and you drive up to a place and you can't plug in. That well, would, I was that would trying to suck. say it before, before you cut me off, was the fact that these new vehicles come with the different ends. Yeah, yeah. Like, we had a Tesla come in too. It had a different end on it. Came with an adapter, plug the adapter in, plug it into the wall. Yeah, Done. That's, that's the beginning of the standardization. Eventually, that's going to go away. And it will just be a, a one plug. Yeah. Eventually. Should be. Should be. Yeah. But it needs to be more widely in use technology before 
people before like standardization just starts to get forced well i'm going to bring up one extra point here that i started to read about in the budget that kind of um kind of worries me but it also kind of uh excites me i know he's gonna say that that was weird yeah settle down over there oh boy a one-time 15 percent tax on taxable income over one billion dollars for 2021 year for um banks and life insurers ah the canada recovery dividend yes what do you guys think that is uh possibly the start of not well it's going to be the start of higher corporate taxes but are we going to start talking about tax the tax the rich is that where this is going that's my question is that the start of uh of taxing the rich yeah i would say it is banks certainly do have all the money although when you go apply for a mortgage if you're not a millionaire they act like they don't have any or they make you jump through hoops (laughs) sorry not bitter at all yeah but you know what you're right it's a one-time tax do you think that these life insurers and banks that lend money out do not know how to carry that cost forward oh you know who's gonna pay it in the end the end user it's not gonna be the wealthy yeah (laughs) it's as they say shit rolls downhill true i don't i don't i i i'm I'm not opposed to uh, like corporate taxes obviously there is a balance that has to occur where they will pay some tax and if it's too heavy you know what they're not going to incur that they are simply going to either get up and leave if it was exorbitant or they are going to pass it along down well life insurers they'll just increase premiums to make up the difference them banks will just you know they'll they'll charge higher interest rates on more fees loans or more fees they'll increase your bank account fees yep um you know they they'll find a way to not have to pay this yeah uh, and at the end of the day it will be you josh and you michael lee and what? myself that will be paying this tax on the wealthy well does that apply to um investment firms thus far it's banks and life insurers okay well you're gonna put your money somewhere else then is all i say i guess so hide it under your mattress well i'm not saying well no you just gave it away i'm not i'm not saying (laughs) it's not under the michaelis mattress (laughs) i'm not saying put your money in the bank but you know what there are better places if they are going to create ways to make you pay more money for holding your money buy bitcoin uh i thought we were buying or don't i don't offer investment advice our friend the doge has arrived and he heard that we should purchase the shiba and dogecoin that is correct well thanks for coming in here to offer us that advice casper we appreciate it yes we'll get you a mic one day you can offer your investment opinions well we should probably mention the defense funding uh spending since that's been you know, that's an interesting point i mean yeah it's been discussed a lot lately it's been nice of the government to spend some money for ukraine i don't know what that money is going to do you think it's weapons or both or or um uh, aid 
Um, the non-lethal aid. There has been a lot of non-lethal supplies sent over there. I don't really know what we've done thus far for Ukraine. Um, I suspect we probably could have done more. Uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't really clear exactly what that $500 million, um in aid for Ukraine is buying. Um, Tickets yeah. to get the hell out of there? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well... Anyways, defense spending, 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 spending. Spending. I think I almost said spending as well. Uh, what is the projected amount to actually reach the NATO uh, amount of 2% of GDP? Do you guys know? The amount that Canada should spend annually? Yeah. I don't know. That is a good point. Actually, I'm going to look that up, Adam. How much are they currently spending and rising in this budget too uh i believe it was 41 billion uh yeah canada's defense spending budget is projected to rise to 41 billion by 2026 27 and that is not enough to meet the nato target so that target will be more than 41 billion yeah i mean apparently this article in the financial post here is saying that um (laughs) that only gets us to 1.5 percent of gross domestic product which uh is only up a point of a percent so i'm not good at uh figuring out that math here but that sounds like can canadians need to spend uh an extremely high amount in order to make it to that two percent budget well i guess we're going to continue not fully pulling our weight in nato as we have for many years Well, I want to ask you guys something. Can spending on defense be used in a better, more uh, productive method rather than people who, you know, you hear spending on defense, you just think that they're buying some tanks or drones or old jet fighters. Mm. Is there a better method? Old of, frigates, old submarines. Yeah. Is there a better way to spend on defense that is more productive? Have you guys thought this through? Well, I don't know exactly what Canada spends it on now. Albeit, I've heard of all the old stuff we buy. But what would you? Su- how would you suggest this money be allocated in a better way? I think I've heard of uh, joint missions from. Uh, defense department and science departments and and research facilities across canada i think there should be a defense infrastructure budget in which canadian military and navy can be used to support canadian infrastructure and canadian research with our defense budget so you'd send in in a sense you know what we canadians uh kind of share a border with that hostile nation to our north sort of yeah and there's just a little bit of permafrost in between us and them and and it's melting away yeah and it's going to be a much more feasible landmass for development in the in the future so why don't we as canadians spend our money on defense and defense research in which canadians could 
use defense money to move goods and services around our country and actually use the defense budget to support infrastructure projects how would that be beneficial like how would you use the defense budget give me an example you build a railway okay we haven't built any new infrastructure like that in a long time and right now to get up to churchill you basically have to fly there unless there's a nice road what if in the future it becomes an area where you know it could be a a port it was planned in manitoba to have uh, a port there long time ago and now if the climate change is going to create warmer weather up there we need to develop a method in order to get up there what if the canadian defense budget was increased to develop uh infrastructure like rail to get around the country develop proper rail lines that could get you up north and what that eventually does is develop a system of transportation because one of the problems if you've looked into this war that's going on in ukraine is the russians basically their logistics are based on um rail lines in their country to get uh back and forth but they're in a country right now where they basically can't move around and they have no logistical plan to support their infantry and and they have other poor issues with their (laughs) plan but regardless of that fact you know if here in canada if some fighter jets flew over the north pole and came to canada you would be in this country for quite a long time and be able to amass uh quite a force on canadian borders uh basically with hopes that our american friends with their submarines floating around up north would be able to detect and counteract any any hostile uh aggression from that direction but isn't this why we have norad yes but what good is it when you have to depend on planes to fly all the way up north what how do you get tanks to a certain area in the country if you were actually in a wartime scenario we have no infrastructure right there's no way to defend the northern border that's what you're trying to say yes and i'm saying we could develop a consistent uh, a plan in which we have infrastructure to actually move a little bit up that way at the same time that would be able to help the current societies that are up north that are struggling with like 30 dollar milk uh jugs you know because if you create more infrastructure in the country would create a better supply chain because now you you just simply would have those pathways well, that port on, on Hudson's Bay at Churchill that you mentioned, this this is an, an opportunity here for Canada to have another way to move our resources in and out of the country to other continents, especially as, um, as it becomes warmer and there becomes longer and longer part, times of the year where there's open water up north 
and ships can move through. And even when it freezes over, you know, there's icebreakers that can keep pathways open. So this could be a, a critical port that could be used um, economically. You know, it can be used in defense. Um, and just if it was built up, as you're saying, using whatever funding, you know, military defense funding, whatever it is, uh, to allow easier access to it, whether it's rail lines, roads, you know, airstrips, whatever needs to be built, uh, this could just be beneficial in that, as you're saying, um, starting, it's a starting point in defending Northern Canada from whatever hostile actions could come our way. And it's also going to drive the country's economy and it will, uh, be beneficial for people who live in the north because there will just be more accessibility to them uh, to be able to get uh, uh, goods up to them from you know the southern southern cities and whatnot and uh, for them to be able to move around as well so yeah it could be mutually beneficial uh, if you know defense money was spent on this kind of thing yeah i mean i don't know if there's any requirements for the defense uh spending that nato actually would consider i think it just needs to be spent on something defensive yeah if that's the case i'm saying hey look infrastructure defense infrastructure and like you're saying economic development both could go hand in hand and we would create a better system for canadians in general with defense spending that would require some forward thinking among the politicians. I'll tell them. Yeah, you let them know. All right, I will. Yeah, let us know how that goes. All right, I'll have to go talk to that Polly Everett next time he shows up here. Yeah, bring some Bitcoin. And Doge. And Doge. Well, that's it for Leak Spec today. You guys, subscribe and share. And let us know what you think.